All right, good morning, Princeton Baptist, and uh, welcome to our sermon for today. We're looking at the topic of repentance, and we're going to look at two questions in particular. What is repentance? Sorry, why is repentance necessary, and how does it work? Those two questions. Not the first one, which was confusing, but why is repentance necessary, and how do we do it? How does it work? So we're going to answer this by going to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 8, which in my Bible is entitled, Repent or Perish. So I can imagine there's a little bit of timidity or apprehension uh, as we approach texts that are captioned such, but uh, there's also this temptation, I think, that we face when we look at verses like this to go, let's put a positive spin on this thing. Uh, you know, Jesus couldn't have meant this quite so harshly. And so we try and think, well, what's the opposite of repent or perish? Well, he could have said, repent and live. And he could have. He could have said, repent and live. There's this promise of good things. And he does in other places. But here, here Jesus says, repent or perish. And he uses pretty strong language. And I don't think it's on accident. So we're going to let it hang there for a little bit. We're going to allow ourselves to feel the uncomfortableness of that statement repent or perish, as we look into this. So we're going to answer these questions in two parts by dividing this passage into two parts. The first, verses 1 to 5, are going to help us look at why repentance is necessary. And the second part of it, a parable of the fig tree, in verses 6 to 8, are going to help us understand, is going to help us to understand how it works. How do we do it? What's the deal? So, no further ado, let's look at Luke chapter 13, Verses 1 to 5. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. All right, I'm just going to pause really quickly right there because that makes no sense to anybody reading this, I presume, unless you're very familiar with what this is all about. So my first warning is don't confuse the Galileans with the Gentiles. Those are two different people. The Galileans are the people from around Galilee. Jesus is called the man from Galilee in lots of popular 80s songs anyways. And, uh, and so he is one of these people. His disciples, many of them come from Galilee. And there are all kinds of Jewish followers of God who come from this area. And so this is the area that he's at. So there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, this is the same Pilate who allows Christ to be crucified. He is not a friend of the, of the Jewish people. So there, uh, Josephus gives us a reminder of this in his histories. And he tells about the cruelty with which Pilate goes into these large gatherings and festivals and actually just murders a lot of these Jews. And so here is what's happening. These Galileans are going to offer sacrifices, and for one reason or another, Pilate intervenes and executes them, and their blood is mixed with the sacrificial blood that they're trying to offer at the time. And so this is read in a folk theology kind of way as a very ominous occurrence, and they can't help but associate some kind of meaning to the suffering of these people. And so it carries on in verse 2. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he strengthens it with another example in verse four, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So what's the one thing that we got to get from all of this? Jesus keeps them from looking away from themselves, and he wants them to view and examine themselves, to understand their own sinfulness and their own need for repentance. Because on the other side of repentance is salvation. Repentance is a necessary part of life. If Because as we said earlier, you could phrase this two ways, repent or perish, or repent and not perish, live. Have, have the life that is promised to you. And so he's saying, you got, if, you, if you keep looking outside of yourselves and pointing at other people and saying, these people are worse than I am, then we're missing the point. So this whole thing is bringing home, Jesus is trying to bring home the universal need that we humans have for repentance. He's talking to the common man. He's talking to Galileans among Galileans. This is not the Pharisees or the Sadducees or some religious elite that's bringing this question up to Jesus. It's common people that are just kind of going, hey, so what's the connection with that? Surely God must think something about those people who died in such an awful and horrific way. And he goes, I'll just take it one step further. What about this otherwise act of God where this Tower of Siloam falls on 18 people and kills them? Do you think that they were worse than you? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And Jesus uses this very inclusive language. You all will perish when he talks about both of these different circumstances. He says, is it worse for them? No, but unless you repent, you all will perish. Every one of you all too will perish. And same with the Tower of Siloam, you too all will perish. None of them will escape this unless they repent. And so repentance is necessary. It's such, a, it's such a foundational, fundamental part of what it is to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. We cannot go on being the Lord of our own lives and then saying that Jesus is also the Lord of our lives unless we go through repentance. This is not the only place in the Bible, obviously, that talks about this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which by extension of logic means that all of us stand in the need of repenting of that sin in order to come into relationship with God. Unless we repent, we cannot know him. We cannot have the life that we were designed to live and enjoy. This is also in Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 11, Galatians 3.22, 1 Kings 8.46, 2 Chronicles, on and on and on. You get the picture. I'll list all of that stuff in, in the video. You can see all those verses. But understand that repentance is not located only in this one parable here or only in this one little story from Jesus, but it is universally held that all humans, because all of these verses talk about a universal need for us to repent. All humans have a common need to repent. And so this is what we get from this. I think if we if we look at these two stories, we need to put this into our own context, but it's going to call us to let go of this us and them mentality that we're sometimes tempted into, right? When we have our own folk theology, we're guilty of this as Christians and as, as non-Christians alike. We're all guilty of just kind of assuming some sort of cosmic causality for other people's suffering. Some would call it karma, right? But this is the same thing that we're doing and Jesus is speaking against it. I want you to think back to the year of 2004 during the Indian Ocean tsunami. I don't know if you remember that or not, but it was a horrific act of God, so to speak. 
that effect, affected seven different countries. Two hundred, more than two hundred and twenty-five thousand people were, were killed in that tsunami. Over a third of them were kids, just women and children, innocent people, good people that God loved, died in that tsunami. And yet, this same temptation that these Galileans bring before Jesus is sort of an innocent questioning. We, we reflected at the same time, right? All of a sudden, online after the tsunami, days and weeks afterwards, people are going, hmm, isn't it interesting that this is a primarily Hindu country? And they're like, what are, they, what are they suggesting about who God is when they say things like that? What, they're postulating at these connections between why this natural disaster happened, which God does not love the death of hundreds of thousands of people, this is not who God is. This is not what he's about. And yet we start to draw these connections and we put up these barriers of the us versus them kind of mentality. We do that in order to safeguard ourselves. Psychologically, we need to feel that we are safe, even if other people are maybe at risk. We can't afford to do that. Another event happened that was maybe closer to home to the Christian community in 2016 when a gunman walked into a gay nightclub in Orlando and he shot 49 people and killed them and 53 more were wounded. And the Christian community had a response to that, needed to have the right kind of response. We couldn't afford to have an unchristian response to that event. And yet many were tempted to do so. Many were tempted online and started drawing connections between, you know, what God must think about these people. And we begin to construct this us versus them thing again. This is clearly condemned in this passage by Jesus. And it's for this reason, I believe, that Jesus uses the strong language that he uses. He needs to shock us out of this. He needs to let us know that we have something to be afraid of when we think in that way. We need to hear his opinion on the matter clearly. Do you think that these were worse sinners than the rest of you because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. We need to read this passage of the Bible and we need to take it to heart. It's not just for them, it's for us. Repentance is for everybody, but most of all, it's for me. But how do we do it? How do we move into repentance? What does that look like? So Jesus gives us a helpful parable in Luke 13, verses 5 and 6, or sorry, verses 6 to 8. This is the parable of the fig tree. It says this, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any at all. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So the connection here, we have to dig a little bit for. We have to understand what, it, what this has to do with repentance. Why is Jesus, what is he making more clear about repentance by telling this parable? And I think the first and most obvious thing that we can all see is that repentance brings with it fruitfulness. It needs to be producing something. 
something good and positive and fruitful. It's not just a change of mind, but it's actual fruitfulness. It's a change of the way that we live, right? It, it needs to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist says. So this is the first thing that we see, is that repentance needs to bear fruit in our lives. And so in Galatians 5.22, we've talked about this before, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, and faithfulness. I think I, I can't I put that in there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The last time I did it, I did it without looking. And uh, I once did that from the pulpit upstairs, and I said self-righteousness instead of self-control. And I don't like going to that. That was, a, it was an embarrassing mistake to make from the pulpit. But it serves my point today, so I'm going to drag it back up, that painful memory, because self-righteousness and judgmentalism are clearly not fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> That's ridiculous to put those things on there. And so how can we sit in the position we are and look back on these cataclysmic events and, and issue forth self-righteousness and all of this sort of self-perceived piety at the suffering and hurt and pain of other human beings. We have to understand that we all stand in the need of repentance. We all have the need for repentance, us and them, but especially me. And so it's more than a change of mind. It's a complete change of our orientation. It's, it's not enough that we would just forget about a thing or stop doing something. Repentance would call us in that reorientation of ourselves to, to take on a new goal, to take on a new objective, to take on a new trajectory altogether. We have to let go of our chronic desire to guard the gate of this thing. We, we feel like we're protecting God's people or we're somehow defending the faith by, by putting up this us versus them divider and barrier, but that's the opposite of what we're doing. We have to allow Christ to open up those gates just as widely as he wants to. And his desire for how widely open he wants those gates is expressed pretty clearly in 1 Timothy 2.4. It says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If we are going to repent, we have to want what God wants. We have to set our eyes on Christ. We have to reorient ourselves to the things that Christ wants. And he wants all of us, especially me, to come to repentance first and foremost. He wants all people to be saved, which means I have to want all people to be saved. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth, which means I have to want all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not our place or position to sit around casting judgment. It's our place to love other people in the way that we've been loved. And when we can accept and receive the love of Christ, which... Once we understand that nobody deserves the love of Christ, that we're all sinners, we realize that not everybody has the same outcome in their life. The Bible tells us there are some who will perish and there are some who will not perish, who will go on to have eternal life. And so why is it that even though we all have the exact same needs, some will perish and others will not? Because Christ has given the free gift to people He's given us a gift to be able to receive. And so it's not anything that we've done, but there is this, this gift of salvation that is waiting for us to lay hold of it, that we need to pick up, 
that we need to, that we need to own. And we do that through, through repentance. The, the gateway to salvation is repentance. There is nobody inside the kingdom of God who is, who is there without repentance. When John the Baptist comes, he's telling people, repent so that you can be ready for the kingdom of God. He's preparing the way for Christ by calling people into repentance so that the kingdom would come and that his will would be done. All of these things, are, are they start at, at that moment of repentance. So here's this image that I want to put into your head, and I would like you to, to consider it. So long as we are guarding the gate, so long as we're looking out and judging all the people and deciding who's in and who's out and what God thinks of them and what God thinks of that group and what God might think of this other group, so long as we're guarding the gate, the kingdom of God is behind us. We're necessarily outside of the kingdom of God. We cannot be inside the fence if we're guarding the gate. So stop guarding the gate. <laughs> Start to want what Christ wants. Desire what he desires, which is that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 12 gives us a really great picture of what repentance looks like in a sort of everyday picture. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a picture of a person who has walked through the gate of repentance. They throw away the sin that so easily entangles, and they run with perseverance. They have a new orientation. They run with perseverance the race that is marked out for them, and they fix their eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so this is our encouragement this week, is that we would repent, that we would come to repentance, that we would understand it's us first who need repentance. We need to worry less about other people and more about Christ's call for us to repent. And not just in that big, once in a lifetime, I repent of my old life and now I'm going to do this new thing, but in the ongoing manner of repentance, which calls all of us to be constantly letting go of these chains which so easily entangle us, but to get rid of those, to continue to cast them off and remind ourselves, not that, but this. This is the life that Christ is calling me to. It's in the very little things. It's in the words that we regret saying. It's in the hurtful way that we speak to others and we go, Lord, I don't like how that worked. I don't like the, the kind of person I am. I need to repent of that, and I need to, to follow the kind of person you've made me to be. And so repentance is an ongoing, everyday thing. I've recently got back into this habit of the evening examine, and you can look that up through Ignatian Spirituality if you want to. There's a number of different evening examines that are available, but it just encourages people to be able to go through their, their day and to be able to sit there with God and allow God to review their day with them. And I would encourage you to do this at least once a week this week. If you, if you think to start, start, try it once a week. It'll take you maybe, maybe 10 to 30 minutes at the most. In the evening, as you're going to bed, just sit down and imagine that God is there with you and he's looking over your day. And you get to go, I don't love how that conversation went. I don't love how I treated that other person. Or look at what a great 
thing that you brought into my life by bringing that person or that conversation into my life. And we can, we can, we can examine the day with gratitude, but also with this spirit of humility and of repentance. And then we get to commit ourselves to living differently the next day, to allow Christ to call us away from ourselves and into this new reality. This is the, the call of repentance. It's for everybody, but most of all, it's for me. It's more than a change of mind. It's an absolute change of orientation. It's action-oriented. It's going to call of you your time, your talents, and, and, and all of your resources to be reoriented for the kingdom of God. And it's a gentle and a beautiful invitation into the kingdom where you have been designed to flourish perfectly where God reigns and where peace and, and reconciliation happen. This is the, the opportunity that we've been given. Repent or perish, but also repent and live. Let's pray. Father, as we go into our weeks, as we go into our busy lives, we get so caught up in, in just habits and, um, and just kind of, these, these ruts of living that we get stuck in, would you help us to examine them with you? Would you look over these things with us, the actions, and review our day with us, and draw us into repentance, that we might follow you with a renewed vigor? Would you strengthen us, Lord? Would you give us the gift of salvation, that we might know what it is to live lives full of your Holy Spirit, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, happy, happy Sunday, you guys. I love you. God bless.